Wardcast episode 175. Go. I'm Dylan Lavento, and today I'm joined by Clint, half coordinated Lexa. How are you doing, Clint? I'm doing pretty well. How about you, Dylan? I am happy to be home back in Richmond. That's where we are. We're in Richmond, Virginia. We're back. We made it. You did it. You survived. We survived. You survived AGDQ. It's true. I survived AGDQ and MAGFest and PAX South. <laughs> you survived a lot of different things. Yes. Yeah, I survived a cold, got my first cold at a PAX. It's, it's been a whirlwind adventure. But you're here. You've you've uh, come up to Richmond to talk with the fine folks at RVA Game Jams during Global Game Jam, and we we're happy to have you. Welcome. Thank you. It's actually been an excellent experience because uh, I've never been to a game jam before uh, this particular event. Um, well, it's always been a fascinating sort of scene like to me, but uh, it's just great to see it firsthand and to be able to provide input on that yeah have you you've gotten a lot of good response or um been able to give good feedback to the to the jammers yeah uh people seem to have liked the talk that i gave so that that was nice and just uh while they've been working they've uh, been able to give you know more specific uh advice about uh what to look out for for their games what they might run into with their controls that could cause an accessibility issue um or and by the way yeah i'm an accessibility consultant as well as a speedrunner so they'll ask about a little bit about that too but uh, a lot of they've been you know they're always always all very warm and welcoming uh, to the feedback and just very passionate about uh, you know what they could potentially do to make their game more accessible I think it's it's a, it's kind of a combination that a lot of the jammers this weekend are art students, mm -hmm. um, so I think they're or they should be able to understand how to graciously take feedback, and then um, just because we're all doing this in our free time, like we want to be super appreciative of your time and our own time and and all of that. I think it's important that uh, you know we're trying to make what we can and the time we're given, and you know do the best job that we can. So. I'm, I'm glad I'm glad I'm glad you've gotten a good response and been able to help out with uh, um, giving accessibility feedback and uh, has anyone asked for any like speed running feedback or anything on that at all like a little bit more of just like uh, on making a game fun and challenging like there were just a few uh, suggestions for that because you want the game to kind of go both ways where it can be fun for someone that you know is once needs to play the game more slowly and kind of more meticulously but also still be kind of fun in a way for someone that uh wants to go fast wants to uh kind of test the limits of your game someone who quote gotta go fast gotta go fast um but uh like say for example there was one where they were kind of, uh, kind of thinking i'm not going to go super specific on it but they had an idea of basically picking up these various objects and carrying them to the goal um and from that uh there was all 
I suggested that maybe make the uh, dropping action uh, be physics related to the speed of your movement that you're currently at so that you could fling them to that goal if you understood the uh, uh, movements well enough. So you could, so that could be a speedrun related uh, type of adjustment to their game. Yeah, being at AGDQ, it was fascinating to me watching how like people, how 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 runners kind of disseminated knowledge with with whatever game they have, and I'm sure it's like, you know, due to the multiple like however big a certain runner community is for any specific game, like how many people are able to like throw themselves at that problem and understand. But like even with you and Semblance being like, all right, well, I could get this super jump if I take the the you know. Um, the character and put them in this very specific position and the collision works in such a way that like shoots shoots him up and i think that's i think that's fascinating yeah uh, the now i just to make sure perfectly clear i didn't discover super jumps myself it, sure. it was other people in the community so i want to give credit to flagelstan and uh devil squirrel who really uh which what a great name, really. <laughs> but uh, he, they uh, really worked that out, how to uh, make those work to explain a super jump uh, in that game. Uh, as Dylan did basically describe, you, in semblance, you deform the ground and uh, the platforms around you. And if you deform a, uh, the ground near a wall uh, just right, it creates this angle of collision with the wall where you start a jump, but you don't actually leave the ground quite yet and the momentum from the start of that jump which at the start of jump there's the most momentum in that part right um that continues to build until you then hold away from the wall and then all of that momentum gets released at once and you go rocketing into the sky right um which is interesting right because from like a uh a developer perspective we would see that as like a bug or a flaw right so it's like okay like I would then go into my code and start zeroing out the momentum every time the the jump is triggered but doesn't take effect, right? But that's something that you wouldn't want because that is a something that you can use and help with your speed run. And I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing, but it's an interesting thing about how like if I am the developer of a game, I can see immediately like what is causing that effect, that unintended effect. Whereas for you guys in the runner community, unless you're working like closely with the developer, which I don't know how often that happens in, in, in the speedrunning community, like you guys are basically scientists ex- doing all these small experiments on these games, seeing like, okay, well, what happens if I do this this number of effects or in you know in this sequence on this thing and this ge- geometry? Yeah, absolutely, uh, and uh, so covering a lot of that with uh, semblance in particular. Uh, uh benjamin and uh let's see uh sugars sugar sugar yeah sugar they they loved the super jump they (laughs) thought it was really cool and you can still do that in like the current patch of the game i'm pretty sure we speed run on like the release patch basically they let us have that on steam as another branch which very thankful for that was kind of them because they did change a few other things but super jumping it's still in there and it's it's they just thought it was really cool. But. Yeah, I think I would I would have the same reaction if it was one of my games that was being run. It'd be like, you know, you were able to like understand a part of the game that even maybe me as a developer could only understand in this certain way, but you're able to take that and and 
make this almost like a performance art, right? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you mentioned with kind of like the community aspect and how we kind of are scientists breaking down the game. And that's that's a pretty good comparison because it's speedrunning. It's a very community level knowledge kind of system. And it's kind of why uh, newer uh, independent games and just newer games in general get broken down very fast compared to a lot of older games did, such as uh, Super Mario 64 and Legend of the most Zelda games and uh, Super Metroid. Uh, you know, they've, they've been around for a long time and then stuff is still getting found today. Part of that's just due to the perseverance of those large communities. But uh, a lot of it is just that speedrunning wasn't as big of a thing or, or a thing, you know, when those games came out. Uh, but now, you know, since we've figured out a lot of ways that games tend to break, we've figured out where the seams are or where they tend to be. And we know where to push and pull uh, to uh, generally, uh, well, make things do what we want. <laughs> <laughs> and I was going to ask that actually is like, you know, when you when it comes to because you talked about this when you did your semblance run at AGDQ that it's now time for you to figure out like the next game you're going to run and you mostly specialize in, in indie games and when it comes to tackling a new game and figuring out how to how its speedrunning procedure is going to work is there like a itemized list of all right, here are the first things I should check out. I should check out for any sort of like out of bounds, you know, uh, things I can take advantage of. And then I should check for any sort of like physics or collision things that might go wonky. Like is, is there like a consistent list of things for you to check when it comes to every game? I don't really have an itemized list myself. Some other runners might. Um, uh, particularly, I wouldn't be surprised if people that specialize only in glitch hunting. So people that don't even do runs they just hunt for glitches they're they are the most they are the unsung heroes uh, of the uh, speed run running community but they may uh, and it's going to depend on like the type of game that it is and how the game itself is built so if it, it if a game is built entirely with 2d assets the way you're going to tackle that is different than if it's built with 3d assets because those are going to interact in different ways so you might uh, be able to try and go out of bounds using different methods, uh, depending on what type of game it really is. Uh, one thing you should always try, see if it uh, was missed, is try to press multiple buttons at the same time in any combination you can think of to see what that might do, especially with menus. But Oh, yeah, really? Yes. Um, that uh, if you ever go back and watch uh, Guacamele or even Guacamele 2, there is uh, something called Select Door Glitch, which you press select as you go through a door and it ends up creating this crazy wrong warping chain. Uh, it's very impressive, but like there is that and there's multiple other games where you're just doing two actions at the same time and it leads to interesting results. So you... That's something that I definitely try. It's like, what happens if I try to do these two things at the same time or very closely linked? Like, say, in Hob, there's uh, thrust rolls, which 
is just doing a sword thrust and then rolling right after and then okay so then your the momentum from that sword thrust gets carried into the roll so you're moving faster that way and then you can then do a thrust roll jump which carries all of that momentum into a jump and you can end up skipping like massive portions of the game by jumping way farther than is expected yeah i mean it's it's such a games as a piece of software have such a huge possibility space where things can just get so exponential or multiplicative just so quickly if you don't think about like all the the different verbs or the different actions you can take and then you don't think about like the weird edge cases like you said of oh what if i just pressed all the buttons at the same time what does that do it's like well i don't know i never thought of a regular player to do that so why would they do that why would you do that in my game it's fun. I like <laughs> pressing buttons. <laughs> and but I think I think that's super cool. And it's also like a different type of of QA, right? Like yeah, it's a different it, type of it, like throwing your head at, at that problem. Absolutely. And like uh, I have multiple friends that have uh, you know gone into QA uh, after or, or from speedrunning or still speedrun. Uh, Muncha Koopas ended up uh, he speed speedruns and speedran uh shovel knight and he works at yacht club now oh wow really yeah yeah he works at yacht club now and has uh done level eight he's even getting to do some level design now but yeah wow. it started with just speedrunning the game so just and the thing about with speedrunning qa is we speedrun qa we do it fast. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of things where they apparently with like Muncha, they gave him like a list of things to do. And it's like, okay, go check all of these text boxes. And it's like, okay, I'm done. It's like, how? <laughs> Speedrunner. <laughs> yes. So it's, and you know, it's just very effective too, because uh, a lot of indie developers in particular, you know, might not have access to those sort of resources uh, in a lot of cases, right. so it's give and take. <laughs> uh, in in that vein, um, because like you mentioned before, you're also an accessibility advocate, and you've also you've you've helped um, uh, give feedback in um, on some indie games that you've been helping out at, and and does that like kind of when you're giving them accessibility advice, um, if they give you like a build of their game or whatever, do you like? sometimes just kind of like fall back into like the speedrunner kind of side too where it's like all right well this is what i think you should do to make the, your game more accessible also i found this exploit <laughs> so uh oftentimes when i do end up uh, i i've also just done like regular testing like you'll you if you play iconoclast i'm one of the uh first listed for testing uh on that game um so i tested that game too late for to really do accessibility, really, because right. he, he had worked on that game for, what, eight years? Yeah, a long time. By the time I got involved, he had already been working for eight years. So it's like, yeah, he was, so the build was a little too solidified. By the way, accessibility, start early. Yeah. But um, with uh, that, I if I'm doing accessibility consultation, I often end up also being a speedrunner consultant. Uh, on what might make their game more appealing to a speedrunner as well. So, yeah, that happens. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you kind of talked about this um, for the Global Game Jam keynote uh, last night, but um, 
is there is there kind of like a lot of common things you come across when you're doing your when consultations for accessibility stuff is it because you mentioned like you know you kind of went down like a, a big list of of things mm-hmm. uh, during your keynote you're talking about like making sure text is readable and in, in a large font and, and all these other things making sure like your colors are con- have good contrast and all this all this stuff like is there is that list built out of these things that you keep commonly seeing so uh that's both a list out of things that i do commonly see and i know are for one, with uh, this that particular keynote, it was a game jam, so I was trying to keep it to things that are very general and uh, can be easy to keep track of within just a 48-hour period, right. uh, for the most part, at least. I, I did kind of go on a few tangents, because that happens. Um, but uh, the there are just like a lot of very common things that you can can suggest for basically every game like remappable controls you can suggest that for every single game no it's like why would you complain about a game having remappable controls it helps pretty much everybody it's like oh i don't like where that button is move it and then it's better for you um then uh like you know uh colors uh color blindness often just isn't addressed super well um so uh and that's something you know i'm not colorblind myself but i do know plenty uh that do have some forms of uh color blindness and you know it it affects them very directly if uh particularly like puzzle games are a big offender for uh colors pretty often if it's just like only color and then there, there are definitely a few that it's like, yes, I should suggest this every single time. Uh, but then there's going to be a lot where it's specific to the design of that game as well. Um, so there, there's a whole lot that can go into that. Right. Um, and and I, I think we talked about it at AGDQ um, about how like the importance of like something having having kind of multiple senses um or you know that you can you can you can uh, understand something in a game using multiple senses just in case like you have any sort of um blindness like partial blindness or full blindness and then full deafness or partial deafness and i think like we were talking about when we were talking about mark of the ninja a little bit too because of it's like uh like sound occlusion mm-hmm. and, and like how it can it, it communicates so much through visual stuff with with uh the character moving around and then also that all ties to the audio yeah, you always, uh, if possible, you want to try to uh, use more than one sort of cue. So, uh, yes, as you were just saying, with uh, both a visual cue and an audio cue, to kind of cover multiple bases to make sure that uh, the player, if they are hard of hearing or if they do have an uncorrectable vision uh, problem, that they can pick up on that cue. So you know, just uh, have, if an enemy is about to attack, you know, you have the visual cue of them pulling back their fist or weapon uh, to do that attack. And then you also might have a a roar or them uh, a a little like kind of ping or flash noise is pretty common too, like for if you're specific to a specific timing to counter or what have you. And just a lot of 
different ways to communicate to the player. And that's not just an accessibility thing, too. That's just good game design to make sure that even a fully able-bodied player uh, sees or notices one of those cues. Uh, and that's just communicating on multiple levels and makes the game more fluid to play. Right. But it's like what you said with like um, puzzle games being very guilty of like relying a lot on color. And in my head, I immediately like, okay, well, how would you how would you go through circumventing that? And I immediately thought of something like Candy Crush, where it's like, okay, all the candies or whatever are certain colors, and there are also certain shapes. And you see that in a lot of like Match Three stuff. It's like that's a that is a progress towards like being more accessible. Yeah, absolutely. And uh so like the a lot of uh newer 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 designs puzzle games are doing that where they'll have some sort of shape difference instead of just being colors. While there are some that often where, where colors are like the main thing, like I think Puyo is still kind of guilty of that, yeah, yeah. but they might have some different expressions on them, but, it but it's hard to discern. It's it's not a huge difference. Uh, so, uh, but they often do also like select their colors pretty well, as far as I've noticed. Like high contrast. Yeah. So uh, that's that's a way to kind of get around that, but it's still it's not quite there. I guess it is much better to have those very distinct shapes. Right. And you know, that's in even beyond puzzle games, if you have like collectible items and the only difference between them is color, it can be harder to tell what you just happen to get and you know which one you're trying to select in your inventory, that sort of thing. So cool. Yeah. Um so you're on the hunt for your next game the speed run. What do you got? You got anything queued up in terms of what you want to explore? See if see if it's the next game. Yeah, I, uh, I think you already know the answer to that, and that's probably part of why you're leading into that question, which is perfectly fine. Uh, <laughs> I know, like a game I want to try is Piku Niku. I want to see how that goes. If that's something that would be fun to speedrun, just because it has that bright character and kind of just lightheartedness that uh, i really enjoy a lot in games well probably also going a little farther just going by its full description of uncovering a deep state conspiracy so yeah that, it, that game goes places it, it sounds like it does but like also very colorful uh so i i, I want to see how, how how that works out for me i i haven't really been able to find what i would say is my next game uh because my reason to speedrun typically is that I just enjoy that game or enjoy breaking that game in some cases, and I just want to play it more. I want to play that game until I'm, I've gotten my fill of that game, and then I end up moving on to another one. Sometimes that is several hundred hours later, but uh, it's... It's it, it's fun. That's why I do it. And so to find my next speed game, I typically have to just casually play a bunch of different games. And eventually one will stick and I'll say, yes, this is the one I want to do. And I'll check and see like about how long a run would probably be. And then it ends up being like four hours and I'm like, okay, no. 
I don't want to do that one. And then the, and there's a lot of different things I have to try and consider just what, what to pick. I also often try to pick a game that hasn't been at a GDQ before. So it hasn't been at Games Done Quick yet uh, because that opportunity to possibly get a game onto that stage and represent that and also have disability representation there that's a beautiful opportunity to me and I'm really thankful for it and uh, I'm not ready to stop yet is is the competition pretty fierce amongst like more popular games more popular games yeah um competition gets very fierce I have tended to not run the super popular games uh even when it isn't a whole lot of players, though, there can still be a lot of uh, direct competition. Like when I was speedrunning Hub, uh, there's a Seductive Spatula, who has like the best username you'll ever hear. Um, and he's also just a great guy, just in general. He's, uh, he's a really good friend at this point. Um, but, you know, we ended up trading that record back and forth. Uh, multiple times kind of bringing the time down on that game figuring out new strategies and honing different ways to kind of go about that game so that was that was really enjoyable uh for that in particular so so there's that the competition isn't always measured in just like number of players it's, it's also some let's see what's the best way to put this because i don't want to say quality over quantity because that's that's pretty rude in this case, because even you know when there are a lot of players, there's often a lot of very skilled players. A good example of that is Celeste. It's the most active speedrun community right now, and has the most active players out of anything. Even over Mario sixty four, it's it's dethroned that. Wow. Kind of. Yeah. So Celeste has been really picked up by the uh, speedrunning community, and I think part of that has been just the close interaction with developers, kind of how you mentioned. Uh, earlier because that can vary a lot right i mean right. i know mm -hmm. matt and noel were on the sgdq couch weren't they last year yes uh matt and noel were on the uh, uh couch for the uh, sgdq uh 2018 run so that that was definitely uh very cool and just in general and you know that's a very competitive game and that has had a lot of different discoveries in uh Although for a good while, TGH um, has had, you know, just most of the records there. He's, he's getting competition and it's the time is still coming down. Uh, like from, say, Fladervi, who I count as a good friend in particular. Um, he's he's given him some direct competition lately. And uh, it's so even in the massive communities, the smaller communities, there's that push and pull regardless. Well, I think I think at first, like, kind of dawned on me when I was watching the Wind Waker speed run, and I've seen Wind Waker speed runs in the past, and I'm like, so I always know how they start. It's like, all right, we're gonna get in the water, and we're gonna start swimming backwards, and then we're gonna do the the pause glitch, and it's gonna build up his backward momentum, and then he's gonna rocket off from the starting island and land at one of the other islands, and then he's gonna like circumvent like the first portion of the game, and then go back and redo it. And when I was watching that, I was like. All right. Well, I'm a nobody. Like I don't know. Like I'm not in this community at all. Like I just I look in sometimes, and I know about this exploit. So, 
I can only imagine the number of people in the community that know about this exploit and are constantly trying to replicate it and being a participant in that speedrunning community. So how many people submitted to AGDQ saying, I'm going to do the Wind Waker speedrun and then, because I mean, I would imagine, and I don't know, I might be completely off, but I would imagine like maybe those communities get together and, and talk amongst themselves first and be like, okay, this person should run it and they're going to submit the time or I mean, they're going to submit the the estimate and then you guys are going to be on the couch if it gets in or I, I don't know. Yeah, it, it definitely varies a lot in general as far as like submission time. So for those that don't know, for the GDQ events, submissions actually happen months before the actual event and they uh, do finalize that list well beforehand uh, for example summer games on quick that's going to happen in july and that submissions are probably going to open in the next uh month and a half or so mm-hmm. uh so it's currently the end of january uh, at the time of this recording uh, it's going up this weekend don't worry. <laughs> okay okay fine fine yeah. but uh just wanted to make sure that's clear um but uh so with that like like the game has to be out by that time for one it has to be a game that's released by then so that's why sometimes you know like say last uh sgdq i think uh no, wait, it wasn't SGDQ, but last AGDQ, I believe... No, okay. The AGDQ before this one, like Odyssey barely missed that cutoff. It, was, uh, it wasn't out yet. Right. It was very close, but it, would, it was released a little bit after that cutoff. So seeing like a lot of chess, like, why isn't Odyssey on the game list? It's like, well, it wasn't out and it doesn't get special treatment there. Um, and... But for deciding, going back to the actual question that I was just asked, the uh, for deciding the game, it, it depends on the community. There's, if it's a well-established community for that game, you're much more likely to have that discussion of, okay, well, these people are, you know, our fastest runners uh, or, you know, best at presenting the game. So they should be the ones that are actually running. Um, and so we'll, we'll have them submit and you know you always want to have a backup in that case so have a few people do submit it or maybe they'll submit it as a race and then also have backups on top of that um and then there are cases where it's just and it's also who can go because no your travel for these events is not paid for right you cover that yourself or through your own community a common refrain in the games industry (laughs) yes unfortunately a a very common issue um again i i give gdq more slack on that because it's a charity event it's all going towards charity so you don't really want to use charity dollars to fly out you know 170 plus runners right uh, out to the events that would be very costly uh, on their end but uh so it's like who can actually go and who wants to do the run um and sometimes you know if it's a very new game you will see a lot of those submissions like a lot of people will just submit and what ends up happening is when they make the game list they'll often pick whoever has the best time at that moment um or it might go down later you know they might someone might step down if like they got passed by someone else a lot there's a lot to consider right i I mean there's also like you know performance anxiety or just like 
being an introverted person like maybe you just don't want to perform in front of a crowd or that's true or like there are cases where like some excellent runners will just have their couch do all the talking for them in that case right um i believe the um mega man uh mega man zero prototype run yeah that was a rom hack i believe that was a run or maybe it wasn't a rom hack but still uh, that was like run a handheld this version or handheld series. I don't know. It, it was a. Di- it was definitely a. Okay, it was definitely a ROM hack of some sort or like fan game. Oh, okay, uh, built for that because it was like to bridge between the um, original Mega Man and the uh, X series. Basically, okay. it uh, did look it, like an X game. Yeah, but I don't know my Mega Man that it, well. It's okay. That's it's fine. <laughs> you won't I, hold it against me. I, I won't. I'm not a huge Mega Man fan myself. There. They're quality games, but it's just not for me too much. The point is that runner was absolutely fantastic at the game. He was super good at it, but he said almost nothing. And he actually had his mic up. He didn't even have it like to his mouth. He just had it up and his couch, you know, commentated the run. And, you know, he did his run. He did an excellent job. And then, you know, at the end of the run, then he put his mic down and, you know, thanked everyone. Um, So even if you do have... So that sort of anxiety about how you talk if there is a community behind you you can get around that right so the i i really felt for the guy that was doing the divinity original sin run and then i don't know if you saw this I or heard about this it. run just so i think the estimate was something like it was very short i think it was like 15 20 minutes um and he's he's going through it and he's in an encounter and he does like some sort of quick save quick load thing and he loads back in, or he like dies, so he loads back in, and he realizes he like quick save too frequently, and so he quick saved at this part that was basically created like a death loop, apparently. And then he just sat there and he was like, Nope, we're done. Cut the run, like I can't I can't do anything. I'm done. I'm done. And I mean, I super felt bad for the guy because like you, you could tell that he was like a lot of frustration just like happened instantaneously, and he was like trying to be as gracious as possible yeah <laughs> and i mean i was like man that that really stinks but i mean and i was trying to think of like what i would do in that scenario i'm like part of me was just like well i mean if you can't if you can't do it like maybe just try to i don't know have fun with it like like all right well we're just gonna we're just gonna see what, where we can get in the rest of the run because i feel like you know kind of understandably getting frustrated and walking away from from the game um completely understandable but i don't know i think i think you could have you could recover from that there have been runners that have sort of recovered from that and there's precautions you can take i mean it's a pc game there's a possibility could have made a backup save somewhere sure um, but, uh, no, but still, you know, that's an unfortunate happenstance that you just never want to see. Um, I do know, like say the Animorphs Game Boy Color game was run a few years ago. Uh-huh. A classic? It's just everyone's favorite. Um, you know, that was in an awful block, uh, awful or silly or whatever. Um, and there was some scenario where they couldn't progress. It was I don't know, 10, 15 minutes into the run. And so they just ended up resetting right there. And then they did the exact same commentary that they had done. And it played off really well to the audience that 
that yeah that was Kizaron and uh that really launched him <laughs> a lot actually so it how you play it off and then there was also another run that uh, uh it was one of the prince of persia games i believe uh and like everyone just ended up giving him a hug after because the game was like not cooperating there was something where uh, the controller wasn't configured right because you know you're not running on your own PC. You're right. running. You have to. There might be something that you might overlook, um, and uh, just the trick the tricks weren't cooperating, and it took it went overestimate. But people had a great time. Uh, he didn't have a great literal time, but he apparently had a good time otherwise. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and like, and and I I never. Because I've never seen like a full AGDQ or GDQ in general. Um, like I'll, I'll, I would pop into the stream every once in a while watching it from home being like, oh, okay, cool. But in my head, I had like completely different assumptions about how the event was. Like I thought it was like, okay, all everyone that's here is trying to get a world record or trying to get a PR, right? Um, uh, PB, PB, by the way. Sorry. Yes. And where, when, <laughs> in rowing, we call it a PR. A personal okay. record and right. then yeah but i heard people calling it pbs so i was like all right personal best personal best personal best Got yes it. yes um you know i assume that everyone's there for you know to get their pb um or get a new pb and then you know and, and then when i really didn't know anything about speed running i didn't know like using exploits was something that was like permissible or even like cordial <laughs> in, in, the, in the community, right? Like I just like, I was like, all right, you're speed running the game. Like you're trying to like work within the the confines of the actual game. And there are glitchless runs, like that's a thing. Yes. Uh, so what you can consider with that is you, you said, you know, working within the confines of the game, the confines of the game are its code. Right. Not it's, uh, you know, rules that it tells you in text. The there's, confines are the code. There's a real, there's a real um, rule of the law versus spirit of the law conversation that can yeah. happen right and, there. And, you know, again, like you said, there is glitchless runs. So it, there's a lot of different ways, a lot of different categories. Like you'll see like different categories where they just uh, ban like one or two specific glitches because it kind of takes the fun out of that particular run of doing all that thing like say ori in the blind forest the, the most popular category is um all skills no out of bounds no teleport anywhere oh okay so yeah there's a glitch you can use to teleport anywhere and the out of bounds tends to be rather it's something rather something yes uh that's uh can kill a lot of runs as well and kind of work in odd ways so you know it gets to a point where yeah sure some runners might feel like i'm not even playing this game anymore i would like to actually play this game right and the you know community will often come to an agreement of okay so we can have a category with these sort of things so like sometimes any percents, you know, no restrictions, just beat the game as fast as you can is the most popular uh, category, but then sometimes it's not. And so there's a lot of different uh, things that go into that. And absolutely, people are not trying to get world record at uh, GDQ 
Um, but sometimes it happens. It happens. It, it does happen. Sometimes it happens in the practice room. <laughs> sometimes it happens in the practice room, which is even more upsetting. <laughs> well, it's it's actually not upsetting if you get it during the GDQ run itself. But in the practice room, you're often not recording. So, you know, just like I remember I did get a PB for a hub uh, at, in the practice room by like a second or two. Uh and no one else was in the practice room that time. Oh, no. Yeah, it was fine because there were like a bunch of new skips. Like I had to learn new skips that week. Wow. Uh, yeah, it, it, I didn't have to, but they were really cool and I wanted to show them off, which is actually what we're trying to do. Right. Because uh, when you're on stage for GDQ, you're trying to showcase both the game and the run, why you enjoy playing it, what makes it fun, try to communicate how the tricks actually work um, and uh, just kind of bring that love of the game or why it's interesting if you don't happen to love the game. Um, but uh, try to just convey that feeling to the audience and make it so it's understandable because... I, a way I've described it before is like when you're just doing attempts of the game over and over on your own stream, it's often just a showcase of just the run, but then on a GDQ stage, it is the run and the game right. that you're trying to showcase. That's cool. I mean, like, and, and now understanding that, like, I, I, I love that even more. I mean, and like you said, like, because it's this performance and you're showcasing both the run and the game, I think it... It allows more people to kind of get involved and get excited outside of like just the really hardcore speedrunning communities. Absolutely. I, I've seen several people that say, oh, I can't even go watch a regular speedrun stream, which, you know, makes me shed a tear. Oh, no. Uh, but, uh, you know, because they need that uh, performance, that explanations. By the way, if you go to a speedrunner stream and you just ask questions, they'll often start explaining the game. They have no problem with doing that. It's just uh, if you're doing it all the time, it's not as great for a general viewer and for just your own play experience. Right. But. I um, I saw one last year. It was Metroid Prime. And this is like, again, makes me have so much respect for speedrunners, like just how much they can understand the minutia of this game when they're not for my assumption, I, I assume they're not like reverse engineering stuff. I think they're they're just learning from like, like we said before, experimenting. Depends on the, on game. the game, right? <laughs> and they the were, community. <laughs> but they were doing Metroid Prime, and whenever runners start talking about like uh, memory allocation and taking advantage of that, I start losing my mind. Like the idea <laughs> that like we're getting down to like, all right, so the memory is allocated in this way. And this room has loaded in, and so now we're going to go out of bounds, and we're going to make it load this room instead, and then we're going to drop down to this room and do all this stuff. Or they, they did the same thing with the Halo Reach run, where there's a part, they spawn into a level, and they're playing co-op, right? It's legendary four-player co-op. Um, or is it two-player co-op? I can't remember. But they, one of them's like, all right, I'm going to kill my buddy. And he just like slams him in the back a couple times and creates like multiple corpses of his friend. All right, this is going to cause a memory overflow of this room, which is going to reduce the frame rate and also reduce the spawn rate of all the enemies. And I'm like, what? What? How? 
How? You just try all these different things. Right. But like, it's one thing to like experiment with it and say like, this is an experiment I ran and and this is the the seen effect. This is the observed effect. Mm -hmm. It's another thing to create the experiment, see the observed effect, and then ascertain the technological reasoning behind why that's the case. Yes. So that that's that's true and there are like some cases where runners will kind of just say things. <laughs> I'll be honest, now the cases that you that you just um uh used, those examples, it sounds like and from what I know of those communities, they probably actually knew. Sure. That that was yeah, what was I'm happening. I'm not doubting that. It's just yeah. it's just fascinating and, to see that. And but you know, sometimes uh you know a runner will say uh that uh, blank effect is uh, RNG or random number generation. Right. And, you know, sometimes it might not be. It could be some other thing that could have technically a somewhat seemingly random effect, such as just physics. Um, but uh, so I, I prefer to just say luck unless I know <laughs> it's it's uh, actual or uh, random number generation effect. Um, but uh, there, as you do speedrun, you kind of learn what tends to cause these sort of things as well. Right. Um, uh, and there are definitely people within communities that have this programming knowledge. Cause as you might not be surprised, there's a lot of people that have, you know, uh, tech jobs that end up in this hobby as well. So they have that knowledge to kind of dig into the game and figure them out and actually do that reverse engineering kind of parts that you've mentioned. Um, I don't do that. I do it all <laughs> on the controller end. Uh, but it, that, that community, that portion of the community is absolutely there. Right. And that's cool. That's cool to see, like being someone that has a CS degree and does indie dev and then is also like a podcaster, like... It's really great to see, like, AGDQ, in terms of, like, the smaller shows, is, like, phenomenally run. Like, all of all of the runners that are... Because, like, at first I was like, okay, these, the guys that are the, doing the couch interviews and all that stuff, I'm like, oh, okay, these are their, these are their personalities, like, these are the, these guys only do the interviews and stuff. And then they're on the couch, and then they're doing runs, and I'm like whoa like i i like didn't know who spike vegeta was before agdq right. like i heard the name floating around and like putting a face to the name and then watching like him being on the couch multiple times and then doing interviews like in the studio that was all fascinating to me because it's like i don't know a lot of devs that could take on those multiple roles of being like the showman and you know the the kind of curator and all this other stuff and the communicator as well as the as well as like doing the key role of whether it's the runner or the developer or whatever and then seeing all these runners do that it's phenomenal and then yeah. seeing like the the whole operation run like this very well-oiled machine is just is great yeah, they've definitely figured things out very well uh, over the years as far as, as the well-oiled machine part, like what tools they need. It's like I've been on the GDQ stage eight times now. So uh, or well, for eight, I should say, okay, seven times because I did two runs back to back once. Okay. So, so uh, for my own runs, at least, I've been on there. I've been also been on a few couches. Um, but like 
the stage has evolved some over the years because my first run was 2015. Um, But after a certain point, it's like, now I just know what to expect when I go up there, that it's going to be this sort of setup. I'm going to need to sit here so they can uh, position that. And uh, I know that they're going to be this, this little thing is going to be there. It's like they set it up in a very similar way each time right. they put that stage together. So they do have a really good idea of what they want. I would say the part that changes the most is probably that uh, interview and prize area that they uh, do show because that has uh, changed a bit from event to event. Right. Uh, more so than the uh, stage itself. I'm sure there are parts that stay- change on the stage that I just don't notice. So if anyone more behind the scenes than me is listening, <laughs> then I apologize for not noticing those particular details. But what I do notice is how well they just put that together and, uh, you know, often it is like different volunteers that they have helping, but there are definitely like key people. So they'll like pair uh, a volunteer with uh, someone that has done this before or is on their staff. Um, and you mentioned uh, Spike Vegeta, you know, people like him, you know, they've been associated with uh, GDQ for a very long time. And uh, so he, I want to say with him, his personality does play very well to the roles that he, uh, he goes with. You know, he does the hosting, so the person that reads off donations, he's uh, great on the couch. He'll explain it uh, very well, uh, or or more of, be more of the hype man. I would say, yeah, he, yeah, he's yeah, very definitely. much the hype man on the couch. And it was funny because I didn't know what he ran, mm-hmm. so I'd be like, oh, okay, Donkey Kong Country, Tropical Freeze. I don't know if I'm like, oh, Spike Vegeta's commenting. All right, like actually, let me let me sit back and and see this. Or maybe he he was in that one. He was doing the race, but like he was in like a couple, mm-hmm. but they were like relatively not not like super obscure, but like they were like. I would not have tied his personality to the types of games he ran. Uh, he does tend to go with like a Nintendo focus, right? But uh, it's often not the like. It's often not the Mario and the uh, uh, Zelda and that sort. But right. uh, yeah, it's definitely big. You know, know B tier Nintendo. I'm just kidding. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I like Donkey Kong but, Country. No, yeah. It's something, too, you mentioned, like, playing all of those different roles. Just, I think a lot of that just comes from learning to run your own stream, too. That's true. Yeah. Because uh, that's a whole lot of different roles that you're doing, uh, uh, whether you're a variety streamer or a speedrunner. Because, you know, you're managing all the uh, tech of your own stream. And then you're also, uh, you know, trying to be entertaining and play a game at the same time and making sure that the chat is maintained and uh you know no one needs to be booted out for whatever reason and all that sort so there's a lot of multitasking that i think i only manage myself because it becomes one task in my head (laughs) because i am terrible at multitasking but for some reason like streaming and playing a game has become one thing to me right yeah i've never been i've never been in the streaming game never never played the streaming game um but it, yeah it seems fascinating to me and i think it it just i think it it, it should you know hopefully 
make us grow tighter as as a community between like devs and runners and and you know players just because like we're all we're all kind of we're all trying to to work as hard as we can and 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 get all this stuff absolutely and the the relationship between uh indie devs and uh speedrunners in particular i think is a very interesting one um for a lot of reasons because say some indie devs might not like us breaking their games, which, you know, fair enough. Um, uh, but uh, there, there's also the consideration that a lot of uh, indie games are either single player only or local multiplayer sometimes. Or, But with single player games, the exposure of your game often drops off a lot of a little while after release. You know, right. how, how many people are streaming it or playing it. And with a speedrunner, often they will be the ones that are continuing to play your game for a long time and continuing to give that exposure. So in some ways it can benefit to uh, an indie developer to work with that uh, speedrunning community to kind of foster uh, that love, that development. Right. Yeah. It's a two-way street is what I what I should really say. I agree. <laughs> um and I mean we talked about it before like you and me off mic and then me Harrison Devin uh two episodes ago we were talking about like you know you know sometimes runners you know we're all guilty of like making assumptions of the other people's abilities and roles and all that, you know. Like you said indie devs, some indie devs might not like runners because you know they might see it as breaking their games or like, you know, an indictment of their programming abilities or something like that and then sometimes you see some runners being like oh this game is a result of bad qa or i can make this exploit as a result of bad qa and i mean we we would all do better you know and i've made assumptions about like streaming culture in the past and some of some of those assumptions may be truer than others but uh the i think i think we would all do better by like kind of understanding better understanding one another yeah, absolutely. And uh, if I could never hear another speedrunner say that uh, dev-, dev was lazy, I would be much happier. Because <laughs> that is something I would love to just see blotted out uh, from the community because it's not really that a dev was lazy. Um, there's so many different factors. And besides, you know, they may have ended up leaving that in for you. Uh, that's what I often suggest to a developer is if it's something that's not going to harm the casual experience but might benefit a speedrunner, right. why not just leave it in? Uh, and, and as long as the speedrunners actually react curtis- with courtesy instead of insults, there is no reason to just not leave it in as long as it isn't going to ruin the casual experience because I do believe that should come first. Yeah. And, and you talked about this with Hob, like, and when you, you're talking about like, oh, if you you do your your strike button and then do immediately go into the roll, like you can increase your speed and keep going, and then you can circumvent a large portion of the game. And I'm like, but doesn't that break the game for regular people too? And then I'm thinking, it was like, well, regular people aren't playing the game mm-hmm. like speedrunners. Like speedrunners are thinking about like pixel perfect, frame perfect accuracy. Like normal players aren't aren't thinking that way. Yeah, I mean, I I figured that out uh, on my casual playthrough, but that's because I look for that stuff right. on my casual playthrough um, and for that particular example. And, you know, it's a lot of... That's quick animation cancels into to maintain momentum or things like that. And that's not really hurting a casual experience. Uh, and 
but it made the game a lot more fun for me in the end. So, so I appreciate that. Like I was kind of, I was, I wasn't, I'll admit like when I was doing my casual playthrough of hub, I wasn't fully sold on it. Like most of the way through. And cause I didn't buy the, uh, the, so you have to actually buy the sword thrust ability. Uh-huh. I didn't buy that like until later in the playthrough. And then I started messing with that and figure out what could happen. And I was like, Oh, Oh, <laughs> it's, it, it just all clicked and I enjoyed the game a lot more then. So it's just like, this is the movement tech that I wanted to have uh, in the game. And uh, it had it. It was just hidden. So, um, We mentioned this earlier. I kind of want to go back to it real quick because I'm such a fan of of your uh, your controller. When we were talking about like when you go to AGDQ, it's not your setup, but... You do bring your own personal controller. Do you mind going over? I know you went over it last night, but <laughs> I want people on this recording to also know about your uh, Razer Wildcat. Yes. So, uh, and the, the Razer Wildcat is a controller I've recommended to several people. By the way, multiple people in the speedrunning community have since got one uh, as a result. But uh, it's by far my favorite controller that I've ever had. It's in. Uh, it's. It was uh, kind of. Uh, Razer's analog to uh, the Elite controller, the Xbox One Elite controller. Um, but uh, it has a lot of really nice features for it. So uh, it has uh, both uh, two extra buttons at the top uh, and those uh, are, are fully programmable to, well, they can be set to any other input, uh, any regular input on the controller. And there are also two triggers on the back uh, as well. But you can remove the ones on the back, just unscrew those because I can't reach them. So they would otherwise just get on the way of the game, the controller sitting on my lap right. uh, very well. So I can just remove those. So that's great. Um, and then like the configurations for the controller, because again, you can set those custom uh, inputs you can do that all on the controller. It's not through some app or anything like that. So that helps me use it for when I use an adapter to then play with that on PS4 or on Switch. Um, so I use that controller whenever I can, basically. But uh, the so you like just press a button and then press the the custom button and then what you want that button to custom button to then be set as and that sets it. Wow. Um, and then there's another button that switches between two different profiles. So you could have like, say, I often have a profile that's like just my action game profile where I set those two buttons at the top, which by the way are where I've wanted buttons to be for all time because of the way I hold the controller, I kind of have my whole hand over it and my fingers are just naturally up there. Um, but I set those to like X and Y so that my uh, thumb then just stays on like A and B and I can kind of anchor myself uh, that way and it works out really nicely. And then my second uh, layout will just be whatever else I need at the time. So it'll be like some other game, like when I was playing a lot of Monster Hunter, that was kind of my Monster Hunter layout, I could say, because it, it worked a little differently. And so it, it's something that isn't, necessary for me to play but i really like it a lot right yeah it also has really good buttons just like very like it has micro switches for its face buttons and, oh, okay and those are just really clicky and it's 
it feels good. Yeah, it's got a good industrial design. I really like yeah. the feel of it. It's like yeah. it's a nicely made controller. But you said they've they've discontinued that model, right? Now yes. they have a new version of they've it. They've discontinued it and they replaced it with the Wolverine <laughs> because everything must be some fierce mammal, apparently. Big Red Dawn fans over at Razor. <laughs> Wolverines. <laughs> but so the uh Wolverine probably wouldn't work as well for me. Um it you can still customize it on the controller as far as I know, but you can no longer remove the uh back triggers. Oh, the paddles. Yeah, so I uh I think you can set them to not do anything, but I would still prefer they not be there and also it has the um interchangeable uh control sticks then which Considering that I move the left control stick with my palm, sometimes there's more force than that because it's my entire arm moving, not just my thumb right. uh, pressing that. So if it is just held on by a magnet, I am I don't know for a fact that it would pull it off, but I'm concerned about the possibility. Right. It's, it's very weird thinking about technology in that way where it's like, okay, new revision, we're going to make some changes. And like in a lot of cases... You know, those changes might be super minor or super subjective in terms of like, you know, uh, I have a lot of friends. Um, you might see this on the Discord since you're on it now. I have a lot of friends that are big fans <laughs> of the iPhone SE. Oh. And like, and now that's no longer, you know, purchasable outside of like their refer- refurbishment program. Um, if it's, it's kind of, they're pretty upset about that, which is understandable. Like if you want a, a phone with a small form factor. Um, but like, you know, in the long run, that's just like, that's taste right but for you like that's a that's a controller the 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 wildcat is a controller that like sits suits your specific needs and is like optimal for the way you run games and like and now that option is not really is not as purely available to you as it was in the past yeah um i have bought three of them um (laughs) one of them i kind of mistreated like carried it loose in a bag and that messed up the control stick so that was on me that wasn't on the controller's build that was like it put a lot of extra pressure on that and kind of messed with that a little bit uh but i have the one that i now other than that i have the one that i use and then i have a backup that i have like the only thing I've done is like set up the custom, the custom controls that I use generally, and then just packaged everything back up. Sure. Because I, just in case I needed it like on the fly, like say on the stage of GDQ, I wanted to make sure it was at least customized to the point uh, that it could be used. Because uh, it also has a hair trigger feature for its triggers. Ooh. So like it's you can lock the triggers so that you only have to press them just a little bit. Uh, to actually uh, count as a full press. And again, with me reaching over the controller and doing everything with one hand, uh, the triggers are the hardest part of the controller for me to reach. I love the shoulder. The bumpers are my favorite buttons, and the triggers are like my least favorite buttons. That small distance, it makes a big difference. So, But being able to have it so I can just press those a little bit helps a lot. Uh-huh. So, because you know, normally that's a pretty long press to get everything, get that full or a lot of distance. But so that's a great feature that I love. But that's something you have to set up. So, Can you turn the vibration off? Um, I think so. Yes, I have vibration off. Okay. I uh, forget. No, it's like I might not be. No, actually, it. You. I don't think you actually can because when you change a setting. It, it, the controller vibrates, let you know, hey, uh, you changed that setting. 
Um, but so, vibrations usually like turn offable on like a system level or yeah, yeah in, in the game it, in some. Thankfully, yes, because I hate vibration. <laughs> it's it's terrible. I don't want it. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if there are people with um are haptics something that are useful to people to certain people with certain disabilities when they play games. Uh, to your knowledge, can possibly be. I would imagine that like uh, I don't think. It would be hard for me to imagine controller rumble on its own being the most useful. It could be helpful for those that have vision problems but can still hear. So then it becomes like a pairing to that sort of cue that if you kind of pair those together. Um, but because, uh, again, you want more than one cue in most cases just as a development rule. But... Uh, I would think something maybe like the Switch, possibly, that they're more... Uh, their HD rumble. Their HD rumble. I could see that potentially being uh, more useful if for, like, certain game modes, if Nintendo would actually be on the ball for accessibility, which I I do not believe they are. Right. So. I mean, we talked about this, and you, you brought it up about how, like, even with something like Mario Odyssey, like, there are things you can only do with motion controls. Yeah, Mario Odyssey, there are certain uh, moons that you can only get with motion controls, uh, and not a whole lot of them, but uh, there are a few. And then there's a lot of actions that are that you can do without motion controls, but it's a lot slower and right. more clunky to do them without motion controls. Even though Mario Odyssey does not use every button on the controller, right. there's a lot of free buttons that could have been assigned for uh, various actions. But And, you know, of course, they would also don't have remapping. And Nintendo doesn't want my money, is what I'm saying. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's, it's really... I don't like it. I, I, because like for me, it was it was frustrating for me because I play my my Switch mostly in handheld mode. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, I can't do any of this motion stuff, nor would I want to because I that's also your screen at that particular moment, right? Um, but even if it was docked, I still wouldn't really want to engage with that stuff because I've just had super horrible experiences with motion controls in the past. But then I didn't even think about it from an accessibility standpoint, where it's like interfacing with that motion stuff just might not even be an option for some people. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. like the fact that they are just like the the refusal to to even have alternative controls. Yeah, seems I, ridiculous. I think their the worst case example was actually Pokemon Let's Go. Right. Um where they had it so that you if the game is docked that you know you had to use motion controls in order to uh throw the Pokéball or what have you. Um while you could possibly just flick a control stick if you had it in the portable mode, which guess what? There are a lot of people that have the issues with the motion controls also can't play in the portable mode where you have to hold, you know, with two hands separated right? like that. So it just ends up being completely inaccessible. This very simple game as far as like how you could actually interact with it becomes completely inaccessible to a wide number of people just because Nintendo just didn't let them use the control stick to fling it or press a button yeah and that's really unfortunate yeah it seems really gross to me like it's one thing if like they're frustrating controls you know and they're and they're 
stubborn about sticking to them. But it's a completely other situation when it's like affecting people with disabilities and they can't, you know, play these Nintendo games. And I just wish, you know, they would be aware of that and acknowledge it and and try to try to work with people so people can enjoy their games. Yeah, it would be wonderful. Um, but I mean, I, I don't want to say Nintendo's never done good um, with, say, like the Switch. It's uh, often good for people that have like chronic pain issues otherwise where they can't, you know, sit up at a TV for a long period of time. So uh, that the portability of the Switch is good for that. But that's probably more by coincidence than design. Um, and uh, then like, say, Super Smash Brothers Ultimate, you know, it, it, that that series has had, you know, rebinding for controls since Brawl. Um, so Nintendo knows how to do it, by the way. They know how to make things rebindable, but like Ultimate has like very good control rebinding with a lot of different options right. uh, available for that. Yeah. Well, not to end it on a down note, but, <laughs> but I mean, there's obviously there's, there's, there's work to be done. There's progress that still need to be made, but I'm glad that like, uh, there, there are, you know, with the work you're doing and the work that, that other, other communities are doing to help with game accessibility. Like, you know, you gave a shout out to Ruthie Edwards, who's in our own community trying yes. to, trying to shine a light on that stuff. And it's awesome. Um, I, uh, I think it's important. It's it's a it's a lot of different stuff. We you know we talked about before how there's a big overlap between the um, uh, players with disabilities and also the LGBTQ community, and yes. like both of those issues are more and more being pushed the, to the forefront. Um, yeah. Representation matters, both cases. Turns out. <laughs> um, but yeah, Clint, thank you so much for for talking to me about all this stuff. Um, looking forward to another another day of Global Game Jam tomorrow. Yes, absolutely. I'm looking forward to you know seeing those finished products. It's been a it's been a blast being here, and you know thank you for having me. You're very welcome. We're we're happy to have you, um, Clint. Where can people find you? All right. Yes. So you can find me in uh, multiple places. I will always be known as Half Coordinated, which makes that easier. But uh, so on twitch streaming which is kind of my main thing i suppose uh so twitch.tv slash half coordinated uh also on twitter at half coordinated and i have a uh, patreon which is more focused on supporting uh accessibility consultation um and that is you know patreon.com slash half coordinated uh so h-a-l-f-c-o-o-r-d I N A T E D. Dylan chuckled because he saw me look up to make sure I was spelling out not my own. I username also correctly. looked up because it's like, all right, wait, all right, yeah, all right, yeah. Um, awesome. And if you like this episode, you want to listen to any other episodes of our podcast, you can find them at ward-games.com, and we're also on Twitter at Ward Video Games. Uh, I'm Dylan Elvento on Twitter. Um, and you can also find them on your podcast app of choice. Just search Wardcast. That's W-A-R-D-C-A-S-T, Wardcast. Clint, thank you again. Thank you.